some are, are arguing, yeah, well, kids are just as bright because they, um, you know, they can look really quickly across different bits on their phone. But that's not the same as the way we chunk knowledge. So when you, when you get better at something by learning about it and by practicing it for hours or by reading about it for hours or by going and doing it for a long time, what the brain does is create this beautiful, big, fat 3D spider web of, of capacity. And that comes up into your real working memory whenever you have to do something in that area and just opens all at once. So you've got this really rich um, physical piece of knowledge if you like that is available to you and it's why when you're an expert in something you don't even have to think about it you know what to do and you know how to do it whether it's dancing or writing or whatever it is and that you don't create that you don't build that if all you do is zip in and out of something on google Real People is produced by Square Holes, an agency conducting and publishing customized explorative research on key consumer markets, customers, and population segments. Square Holes also provides associated consulting and support to ignite positive business and social behavior change. Visit squareholes.com for more. Radio, hello there. My name is Jason Dunstone, and welcome to Real People where we interview average and not-so-average people, academics, researchers and leading thinkers to help us better understand what real people believe and how they behave. How we form connections with each other when looking into each other's eyes versus via the click of a smartphone makes a big difference to the emotions we ignite and the trust we build. Dr Fiona Kerr shares her research and expertise, including the neuroscience of human-to-human and human-to-technology interaction, neurogenesis, and how good leaders create organisations that flourish. Dr Kerr is Industry Professor, Neural and Systems Complexity at the University of Adelaide. She builds on 30 years working and consulting in Australia, the US and Europe to corporate and government in relation to science, the power of human connectivity, artificial intelligence and wider conversations. We discuss what makes humans and robots distinctive and how critical it is that humans retain their imagination, creativity and leaps of faith and how we need to spend more time switching off than being continuously wired online. It is so easy to outsource convenience and thinking and even be a bit lazy. Are the humans becoming the robots? Let's not waste a moment. On with the show. Hit it! That's what I'm talking about! Wait! Okay now, from the beginning... Thank you so much for joining me today, or us today, Fiona. I'm going to start right back at the beginning. What were you like as a young girl? <laughs> oh, um, curious, I suppose, would be yeah. a, a good term. In what way? Um, well, I was an only child. I grew up um, with a dad who was in the Air Force, so we had um, and a mum who was a matron. So that was interesting in that time. We had I had 14 schools. Where did you grow so, up? Um, Scotland, oh, like you Scotland in and England. Um, yeah, um, so around Britain, uh, mainly Scotland, but also high school um, here as well. And then I've gone backwards and forwards. Um, so dad, maybe dad wanted a, a boy, but I don't know. Um, I think I was probably about eight the first time I was given a toaster and told, you know, take that apart, see how it works, see if you can fix it. <laughs> um, and that's been fantastic. So I could have a car, but I had to be able to fix that as well. And what it's taught me right from early is you've just got to figure out how things work. Yeah. And 
And that's whether it's you, you from, know, from people, your, your organizations. You need to work it out. Very much. So we were always the ones fixing the washing. I still fix the washing machine with my now son, who's an engineer. Yeah. Um, and, and then mum being a very kind of strong, she was a midwife in Britain. So, you know, you go out and go to the houses. Um, so she was a professional woman. Um, I'm very empathic, very caring. So they were a fantastic combination, I think. So because we travelled so much, it was very much. I was in a lot of adult company, probably. Um, yeah. Did and, you travel a lot for like parents' work reasons? Well, or? because Dad was was in the Air Force, so I was yeah, an Air oh, Force brat. Yeah, so I I moved. We moved all the time. Yeah. Good and bad, because if you move every six months, you don't have any siblings. It can be quite tough. You make a friend and then you leave. I think you either go into a shell and don't talk to anybody or you can talk to everybody and there's probably me. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. So you found you, you became quite um, adept at being social in the situation. Yeah, I think I'm and – and I think also it's because I like people. Like I find with anybody – I speak to everyone and anyone. I spend lots of time now in things like the back of taxis and um, but um, and I work in, in five different companies countries um but i think everyone has always got some a gem that you just have to kind of you know engage with them and you find it it's yeah. really fascinating yeah. and so most of the time in scotland as a child when i was young yes yeah. Yeah. what was scotland like when you were your memory of scotland when you were young <sighs> snow <laughs> um and hills and yeah well, um, what it was were people like they're very interesting in that, well, I mean, I've been back as an adult as well a few times. Um, I guess the Scottish are, certainly they're very warm and I love, love kids. Um, the nice thing about being in Scotland, so if I'm travelling, say, in different places, Scotland's not a place that you you get lots of gushy kind of, hi, how are you, and you have we have to do this and that. Um, an excellent example for me was the last time, one of the times I was travelling as an adult on my own, um, was I left something on the train um, going up to Aberdeen. And I remembered about 2 o'clock in the morning and my girlfriend said, it was actually my bag with everything. And she said, that's okay, it'll be there in the morning. She was really sure. And sure enough, they took 10% for a finder's fee, because, but it was 10% of what's in your purse. So if you had 10, 10 pounds, you could afford one. If you had 1,000 pounds, you could afford 100. Um, and someone would just give you a note every now and then and just say, if you're stuck, here's my phone number. And so it was not all front, but it, but you knew that you could actually ring that number if you needed someone. Mm. So, yeah, I think that kind of – they're also very funny usually, like there's a good sense of humour. But Where do you think um, that comes from? Is it just part of their I, culture and yeah, their, I think where that they've come from? It, it's interesting. I, I actually like Finland as well. I spend time in Finland mm. and, and there's definitely some similarities. Um, we could get into complex systems. I think partly it comes from being a small – more sparsely populated, more difficult to live in. They're cold, they're <laughs> snowy. Mm. Um, and they've both been through some levels of you know, trauma. Um, and you, you have to become adept at being, being adaptive and, mm. and getting on and figuring out what's important in how you interact and who you interact with. So I think that's part of it. Yeah. We, we interviewed uh, Andre Noel Shakur. And he was talking about Finland, and yeah, that, this, that he moved there from Montreal, and just said he needed oh. to have a 
be able to deal with the cold and, mm-hmm. and, and that sense of humour came up as well. That's, that's really interesting. What, how, how old were you when you came to Adelaide? I was uh, just pre-teen yeah. um, and we went, we went back and forth a bit, but, but that's, that's where I was. We were based yeah. here. Yeah. What, what was your, your thoughts on Australia when you first got here? <laughs> hot, dry, hot. <laughs> dead. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, it was really hot and yeah. really non-green, um, yeah. I still remember. But, um, yeah. There was, a, I guess everything's different. You always tend to love your, what's, what's in your head from childhood. Like, so I live in, in the hills now. So I live with green and it's colder and I miss snow. Um, but the, on the other side, the vibrancy of the colour here was striking. Um, so I, and I still see that whenever I come back, whenever yeah. I've been away. Were you studious as a child and always intended to go to university and had the same? Had a, a clear vision of your your career? No, no, not at all. Not a clear vision. Um, probably studious. I just liked finding out what how things worked and and why. I loved reading, um, but writing, drawing was quite arty. I danced. I was I did classical ballet from four till sort of twenty four. Mm. Um, I wasn't allowed to be a ballerina though. Um, I think I well I wanted to be a teacher till I was in high school and <laughs> found out how rotten people could be as students. Um so I started in genetics at sixteen at uni, um, had to pick up a half subject and uh, picked up witchcraft, which I thought okay. sounded amazing. And it was. It was so interesting that I left by the end of first year I left science and went into uh, anthropology. So I became an anthropologist. Okay, wow. um, and my father kept saying, <coughs> That's, is that a real job? <laughs> um, and I, I was really fascinated. And I, I guess that's human systems, you know. Um, and then went into industry and picked up a psychology degree because I ended up in um, ETSA in, and power stations, coal mines, um, often in industrial mediation. And because I found I had a knack for getting people to actually stop, listen, think, talk, mm-hmm. um, understand. So I managed as well. Um, yeah, so I did a psychology degree. Um, but I didn't go back and do the thesis till 50. Right, okay. And so I, by then, um, I'd, I'd worked for, you know, 20 odd years. And I was seeing patterns in what made companies adaptive and, and good leaders as well. So I was lucky enough to be running my own small company by then and working with kind of CEOs and organisations for an average of about three years at a time, making them adaptive. Um, so they were coming to you um, looking to be more adaptive yes, in what, in what yes. respect? They were, they were either there was a problem and they were saying, can you fix it? Mm. And so often that was... Um, <laughs> Yes, taking an organisation that had often been restructured by all sorts of fancy means and was just not working even, you know, it was even worse. Um, or there were an organisation that was already pretty good but just wanted to be really adaptive, wanted to be dynamic and on kind of on the front foot. Mm. Um, and it was almost self-choosing because with the CEO, that normally senior people come to you with what they think is the answer to a dilemma they've already decided is the cause, you know. They've already thought they have the problem. Um, very rarely do we really have the right problem. So it's, it, is that the right question is a good question to ask. And 
So we would go through a process of saying, okay, so if that's what you want to do, if that's your answer, let's work backwards and see if that is the question that's being answered, and mm. it's usually not. Um, so then it was a discussion around, well, if that's the, if we can get to the question, then the answers are over here. You know, they're not, they're not necessarily so where you're looking. They might be looking in a whole different area. That's of right. The they usually just about is. always were. Um, so it was either a discussion of, well, you can do what you want to, and that's great. I don't think it will actually solve what you want, and you can get someone to do that. <laughs> mm. Probably not me. Um, but if you want to actually solve this this thing we've decided is the question, then we need to do X and Y and Z instead. And uh, and it will take you probably three years to be really adaptive in that, not six months. So um, what you find is, and, and what I found, because I ended up, the thesis ended up being about creating and leading adaptive systems, that um, that the complex thinking leaders were the ones that, knew that it would take time. They knew it was an emergent process. They knew it was a lot more complex than than the real kind of hierarchical linear thinkers mm. knew. Um, and they were quite happy to take that time because they knew it wasn't going to be quick, but it was going to be a really interesting process. So I had some fabulous experiences with really good leaders. Um, Are leaders changing? Is your observation over the last decade or two of leaders changing the way they think about leadership or is it about in your role finding leaders who who are more adaptive or self-aware that's a really good um, word to use i think i guess i look at um i'll answer it a bit in two ways uh If you think of us all on a bell curve, you know, you've got, you've got the really linear hierarchical leader at one end who already thinks that they know everything about everything from the start. So they're quite difficult if it comes to, you know, that they can be very strong, but what you get is an organization that will work for a while and then break. Um, then you've got every, most people who learn over time. And it's called metacognitive maturation. And then you've got the other people at the other end who are just really complex thinkers, really comfortable with emergence, really get that whole beautiful dance. And um, so there have always been and there will always be good natural leaders who are just really complex thinkers, really are comfortable with that sort of ambiguity can give things time to percolate, don't have to control. They understand they can steer, you cannot control. They're happy with that. They're really good at reading the dance and radar and letting people, you know, get be part of the process, which means that people that they lead also get more complex because what I now know is it changes the brains of the people okay. you lead. Um, and so we've always had and we always will have those people. But I think that some countries support, recognise and grow those people better than others. Can you explain that a bit more? That's the cultural differences in terms yeah. of how different... And how much they survive, how much we even recognise that they yeah. are good leaders. Um, so we... The more... Um, <laughs> the more linear and, and non-diverse you have... Um, systems such as governments in the country, the less you tend to support com complex thinkers. Um, it's because you can start 
increasing complex thinking right from high, you know, primary school, basically. If you expose children to complex problems, then they will get better at dealing with that. And they actually grow different networks, different neural networks in their brains. And the more you expose them to that, that really lovely kind of, you know, uh, well, that complexity, and the more you let them play with it and fail and pass and build new ideas and those sorts of things, the better we get. Um, so even how you educate really changes what you're going to end up okay. with in the way that people think and can think um, and the, the, even the structure of some of the ways that their brains work. Um, and so that's going right to the basis. And then with leaders, if you have economies, say, or if you have societies that have have structures, um, you know, political and economic structures, where all that matters, for example, is is building an economy, then you will tend to get different kinds of leaders in that system than if you have a structure that is is wider and wants to build a society. Um, because you measure different things and you reward different things and the companies work in different ways because success is seen differently. So what's a culture that uh, is, a, is set up in a way that supports... Um, yeah, that the, the wider... Right yeah, that, yeah. yeah. I guess we've talked about Finland. Um, yeah. So that, that's one I know. So um, what is Finland doing from your perspective of well? So one of the big differences is what we were talking about is the is it the right question? So right at the top of the system, and this is, we're now talking about sort of systems in systems. Um, if you're if if the question for running a system is um, how do we get down debt, for example, which has been pretty much a question here for quite a while, then then that shapes the goals of the of the system and it shapes what you measure. Um, in, in Finland, the question um, was how do we, you know, we're too small to be constantly changing everything every time we, we change um, governments or, or parties. Um, so the bigger picture is what does a successful society look like? And they came up with five different things. So there was a health, education... Um, infrastructure, ageing and art environment. And they have 30-year plans, whereas ours are, we're lucky if we get two to four years. Um, and so it's very difficult to plan for a, a complex integration of different things, like a society or like, a, you know, with an economy as part of it, if you're only looking two to four years ahead. Yeah, that's right. Um, and, and, and in a... In a very political way, too. Yes, that's in, in, right. Yes, very partisan yeah. way. Um, whereas, if you're so, those thirty-year timelines are bipartisan, truly bipartisan, and uh, or non-partisan, and cross-connected, um, and then brought back to shorter term. And what does that look like for the next year? So, the decision-making process is different. The um, measure of success is different. Um, what you can do in terms of, of going forwards in all different areas, public, private and social, is different. They also um, equilibrate success over those three things, public, private and social. You know, what are the roles of each of those in the, in the five areas? So it's this beautiful network, complex network of of what you're looking at, what's connected to what, how long for, 
Um, unfortunately, we we don't connect things up and we don't look very long term, and we tend to have very large silos between public, private, and social. Mm. Yeah, so it's frustrating. <laughs> so, so in Finland, do you, do you have a sense that in places like Finland, that's an, that's only used as an example. Sure. Yes. The community has an understanding of where the culture is moving rather than just yeah. the government or the, the leaders. Yep. It, sounds, it sounds like from what you're saying is that the community has a clear idea of what's important and where we're heading. Yeah. Well, what you get in those societies, um, and there's, there's some others around that are quite interesting in the way that they also delve into this kind of community engagement, is you get a higher level of, of direct community engagement. So what you get then is a different way of, of decision-making, because you tend to push more decision-making out into the community, the society, which means that you give them really good information to deal with, um, to have a look at that in order to be able to make good decisions. Um, so it changes how you make many of the, um, the, the rules or policies. Um, it changes how you, how you do things like tax what people do. So there's a very high level of tax, for example. The, the, the discussion on tax is a really good example. Um, I think it's they pay something like 56% tax there, but you get a massive say on what, what how that shapes the society you want to live in and the world you want to make. Right. Um, a high so level of transparency. Very much, and control, because mm. many of the decisions around education, ageing, you know, health, are made by the society through public engagement. Um, and they trust that what they want will be what is done, um, whereas we have a different type of structure there. And so people then tend to focus on, well, I don't want to pay very much tax um, because people don't feel that they are able to have a say about what the, what's done with the money. They don't necessarily agree with what's done with the money. There's not a lot of transparency. So, again, it's just this completely different sort of systemic um, uh, cycle where there's there's many different kind of um, loops and, you know, reward systems in that. Mm. So if we travel around the world, who else is doing it well or not so well? Let's take the extremes. Who, yeah, who else there's, there's some interesting um, bits within that. So I spend some time in France and... Um, so some of the bits with France aren't aren't so much like that. Yet some of the engagement, um, I guess you might call it socialist kind of structure. Some of them are really there. Um, um, Germany. So I've had two German husbands at my time, um, and they've got some really good methods of um, engaging different types of structures. So, you know, the role of unions in, because I used to be in General Motors and was in industrial relations and and um, and the role of unions in Germany was and still is much more productive and proactive. Um, in fact, unions are probably one of the reasons that Germany got through the GFC so well um, because, again, they have a different feed into that structure. Um, yeah, so you, you've got really interesting elements of engagement and trust in different parts of the world. Yeah. And then you've got other environments which where trust is, is potentially, you know, an issue. Where, where what are countries that are examples of trust maybe being more of an issue? I guess we've – well, we've – we're one. Yeah, um, probably, the, yeah. probably the US is one. Um, it's really interesting watching China with things like the the new engagement in um, 
in data and AI, and uh, and then as the government changes how that's utilised, the level of trust in how that's utilised changes as well. Um, yeah, so it's a it's a so what so it's been interesting in some of the discussions we've been having for the podcast of how places like Australia and maybe the US can be quite introspective. Yes. So that sort of that 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 sense of being globally very strong in everything, but maybe having some weaknesses or opportunities to improve. Is that fair? Yeah, how would you I, I mean in you terms of that... you were talking about maybe um, this the the, the the structure or the way in which we uh, deal with leadership in Australia could be improved. Mm. Is that is that right? Yeah, I'm interested in your your comment about globally strong. Tell me what you mean. I I, I get a sense when we talk uh, that the Australian leaders have a sense that at a global level we're we're pretty clever. That, that there's a cleverness about Australians and a strength about it, the way in which is, uh, Australians deal with innovation or about thinking strategically. That maybe isn't. If we have a mirror put up to us, we're not maybe as strong as what we thought. Uh, uh, we had a one, one person we interviewed, Suet, who was talking about. He grew up in India, and he said, "Well, India, uh, when he was a boy, didn't have phones, and now they're sort of leapfrogging yeah. ahead." Uh, but maybe a sense that Australia um, has a very good safety net and a belief of being uh, innovative and strong and entrepreneurial, but maybe not as strong. Entrepreneurial as other countries. It's yeah. Someone's having that mirror and part of the, I guess, the unexpected outcome of, of this uh, podcast has been, yeah, putting a mirror up against ourselves to go, oh, maybe we're not as strong as we yeah. thought. Yeah, and, and that's right. Um, and sometimes it's quite, uh, quite interesting being in different countries and talking about how they see Australia in mm. various ways. I think one of the things to do with Australia is. And it's not new. Um, if you think about the six, this was it, the mid sixties when that, that whole saying of the lucky country. But if you looked at the rest of the sentence, it's much more around with the lucky country. Um, and I cannot remember word for word what the rest of the sentence is, but it's along the lines of that that luck's being wasted by fools. Mm. Um, and so Australia is a really good example of a, a very rich, lucky, indeed lucky, many, you know, natural resources, so much is, is, is here. And what that tends to do, it reminds me of, if I worked in, in General Motors in the 80s and I came in in the late 80s to that company and maybe they gave me the role, that industrial role, because no one else wanted it. But mm-hmm. the button plan came in at that time, um, the... The fact that you had to amalgamate with different companies, um, a number of things were all at once. And GM was a little bit sort of fat and lazy and, ah, you know, everyone will just keep buying Holdens. Well, of course they didn't. Mm. Um, so what you get is, and it's a good example and probably Australia as a whole of when you have a stable system. So you talked about India being able to leapfrog. That's, that goes back to complex systems again. So if you have a system which is a little bit, um, sort of tipped on its edge, um, it has to be, ready to move um, it, it's a it's a bit off kilter and it makes them a lot quicker at being able to to you know to move to change and Finland if you if you like going back to that um, constantly being overtaken had to be nimble um, if you get a high level of stability 
then we're a bit like a blancmange sitting on a table. You know, you poke it and we just stay there. And and you really have to shove it off the table and kind of, you know, sort of make it hit the floor before it does anything different. So if you've got a really highly stable system, it tends to absorb small um, small tries at making it move, which are which are adaptive. It's got kind of weak signal thing of the hierarchy and, and the horizon is changing. And it just ignores it until it has to be shoved. Um, and so we don't have good radar because if you're too confident, you become blind towards looking at the fact that things are changing. You don't, you haven't got good radar. You don't pick it up. And that can be, assuming you're saying that that's, that can be or is an issue within Australia. Yeah, because yeah. We're, we've been because there is so much there that we've you know people we've been able to kind of pull out of the ground or sell, um, we so we're not we haven't been traditionally good at things like value adding at looking forward. It's just been a case of yeah, well we've just got things that we can we can rely on, mm-hmm. and so it does tend to make you squander what you've got, and it does tend to make you lazy, um, in uh, the nicest possible way. <laughs> uh, do you see that Australians are? globally focused? I think some are. Um, Australia is really interesting in that it is such a mix and there are people that spend a lot of time in and out of it and travelling and thinking. Um, and then there are there are people who are really happy to, you know, to be here and, and to not really think very much because it's a very comfortable place to live. Mm. Um, and again, you don't, you don't want all of... It, of one and none of another, mm. um, because again we need people who are who are comfortable with where they are and how they live, and and then others that kind of get itchy feet and quest and have a look and bring back ideas and and put that into the mix. Mm. Um, I think we it'd be great if we could get a bit better at incorporating for positive reasons instead of um, you know being on guard as mm. much as we are here um, to grow with those differences and changes yeah. um, and to to absorb them in that kind of longer term way of looking and more holistic way of looking at um, the globe as a globe mm-hmm. so almost like comfort builds complacency sometimes in the yes. way we think about things so it's, it's a it's an easy lifestyle we might as australians we we uh, can complain about our city or our town or but but by and large we, we might be doing that while drinking a nice uh, Australian Shiraz or uh, <laughs> eating some nice cheese. So it's, it's, but we are by and large quite comfortable. We are comfortable. And I don't know if we, um, if we go back to that thing about do you build societies, do you build economies, there was a tendency. I'll put it another way. If, again, if we go back to, to systems complexity, or if you have a group of people making a, a complex decision, or trying to solve a complex problem, then that that group should be diverse, mm. because what you get is very different frames of reference around that that group, and they take in a lot more disconfirming information. They question a lot more, and the goals and objectives are wider and richer. And I suppose fairly traditionally, um, we've tended to be. Um, if, if you look at, say, federal-level politics, usually people are, um, you know, lawyers, economists, what, which gives you mm. um, a, a financial and litigious view, and that's it. Mm. Um, so we're quite narrow in 
in therefore what we see as the as the way to build a country um, and a society and what you measure and what's important and we need to be wider we need to be looking at different um, considerations so more diversity is yeah we're talking about yeah, yep. diversity yep. in terms of gender and cultural and yeah and i think just having 50 percent women who are still looking at the same lens is not the answer that to me has never been yeah. i mean i've been maybe like well probably for 20 years of my life leading you know defense and mining and all i was just about always the only female but i don't think that's the issue um it was the um the people that could think in that more holistic way and would ask questions around, is this the right question? Have we got all of the information that we need? What is it that we're missing? Mm. Beyond um, confirmation bias and yeah, have to think yeah. in, in, in a fresh way. Yeah. So an example for me is, um, so in Finland, um, last year I was invited uh, onto their, their steering committee for their artificial intelligence program, so to design the program for the country. And my brief was, what what do we know, what don't we know, and what questions should we be asking that we're not? And that was around artificial intelligence policy. It was around policy. It was around um, the world of work. It was around technology. It was around human, you know, um, physiology. It was as wide as you can possibly get. Um, I don't have any conversations like that with senior people here. Meaning that that... There's an acceptance of what you discuss and what you don't discuss. There's I not think a questioning of, new um, ways the, of the interests are different. So the interests are around um, what that means for the economy and what that means, quite particularly in terms of you know, um, say in, in research investment and the world of work. Like mm. For an example, so definitely have those discussions. But um, if you start sort of drifting into maybe what a quality relationship long term is between AI and humans and what that what where policy might have a, a role in that and education and you know um, um, an international wage that gets very quickly gets difficult mm. to discuss <laughs> so is that almost like that need to have that counter perspective on something that's like popular in community uh, Let's say uh, digital disruption, things going in a digital direction, we should feel comfortable as a community that we question the the negatives as well as the positives. Yeah, absolutely. Well, we seem to be almost swept up of it's all positive where there are negatives associated. Yes, yeah, yeah. yeah. And we all, or else we go all negative. I mean, certainly if we get into my area of, of sort of, you know, artificial intelligence and humans and the whole thing around when is a human better and when is technology more efficient and when is the combination the best mm. um, use of, of resources and when is it completely neutral and it doesn't matter. Um, depending on where I am, but three out of those four are not even thought about. It just tends to be, you know, how do we get technology here? How do we technologize this? Um, so it's always better to have the really 360 view mm. and say what are all of the what, what are we even what are what are we even trying to think about here and um, it's it's also much more interesting but it's certainly more balanced in what you start to consider before i move on to a different discussion i'm just interested in australia versus the us are we 
more similar than different? I'd say so. (laughs) Um, There's some really interesting differences. Um, So again, now that I'm suddenly in the middle of excuse me um, technology discussions and also the the when is a human better discussions and so both are are very again very economically driven um, and technologically driven and humans are we always love the bright shiny mm-hmm. things you know if you if you look at any technological change over time we tend to jump in and then spend time mopping up the problems that we never really thought about until they come up um, but that's pr- pretty normal but one of the differences is um, that America's also got a, a, a kind of a subgroup of philanthropists that that also say well what are the things that we need to think about here and there's money to look at that as well um, so in some ways they you know they caught the, <laughs> they caused some of the issues because of the highly technologized um, Silicon Valley type of process but also there are other groups there that also that have a capacity to say and how do we make sure that that's the right way that we go so it's a very interesting um, difference between the two countries in the discussions that you end up getting into so in Australia you might have a commercial or an entrepreneurial discussion that is more commercial and doesn't have necessarily a um, a social element to it we have America a different have more we a, have a different way probably a different spending pattern around looking at at the social ramifications for example yeah um, and certainly there's philanthropy here it's just it's not as open and it's and it's harder to find um, and who is responsible there's some different ways of looking at that as well mm-hmm. in terms of balancing that public private and social but you, I find Europe and Scandinavia better at that even the concept that there is always those three legs to the stool and <clears throat> excuse me and they have they all have really important uh, roles to play in in any of the big questions that mm-hmm. we have to answer as a society and a, an economy um, and that's what changes I guess, high-level, long-term discussions as well. So, again, if we go into AI, um, if we've got a country that is just looking at maybe the public-private economic value of it and and a risk base Mm -hmm. of of the litigious aspect of it, that's very different than if you've already got a country that that basically amortises money across public-private and social Mm. systems because they understand social capital is... Is the not only the innovation centre of your society, but it's your health as a society. Mm-hmm. Um, so, if you highly value things sitting in that area already, um, they also tend to highly value the roles that sit in that kind of area. So, you're the nurses, your teachers, those sorts of roles are, are better respected, more highly paid, more highly valued. And if we get into technologisation. The countries that already devalue those also devalue the the human elements in the workplace that that often AI tend to minimise. So you you again you have that cycle happening more in the countries that don't think really holistically across public, private, and social because they ask different questions about how you use technology in the workplace, for example. Um, 
And so we don't have we don't have enough discussions around well what is worth and what is productivity mm. and what is um, you know being useful because it's critical for people to do that. So yes, we're going to have big changes say in in work roles, but trying to figure out what that looks like and there's a real difference in in using something like artificial intelligence to to increase it, it, um, the sort of quantity kind of things such as I don't know profit for for a small mm. number of people and trying to use AI for increasing quality of life for the whole society because then it becomes a very different discussion around how do we build it what do we use it for what do we want it to enable um, because that should be the question. It should be what do we want our future to look like and therefore how does technology enable it? And that's it? more of a sophisticated discussion, generalised, but in Europe compared to maybe the US or Australia. Currently, yes. yes. And I wonder whether just my observation of discussions, I'm going to say Silicon Valley is a, a, a wide uh, discussion of startups in the US, but my sense is that in those communities, because they've probably made lots and lots of money out of being commercial in, in technology, you're starting to see more discussions from some of those leaders in that space of about health and well-being and about social and some of the apps about meditation and whatever mm-hmm. coming out of there. Because I think they're finding that balance. Maybe they're seeing in that in that very focused, commercial focused environment that there are neg- negative ramifications that they're going, oh, we better do it. But the government, I'm, I'm assuming in the US, is more about economy and short term but that maybe some of the there's segments within the US that are thinking more about other 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 changes that yeah might be I, I guess even there some argue that that in Silicon Valley you're starting to get those things coming out because they're um, they're being market driven so there's now people that are going ah we need <laughs> we uh, need some time out oh great we'll give you an app for that yeah. um, so yeah, it's an, it's, it's, it's almost yeah. So it's 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 exploiting, <laughs> so it's it's exploiting social problems. <laughs> yeah, that's so it's right. still not right. Um, yeah. We've got to be more European. Yeah, yeah. so it's yeah, it's it's an interesting. Whereas if you look at is it the Danish Huga, um, where you know the answer is you turn your phone off, put on jumpers and <laughs> and candles and and have uh, make sure that you're we leave work at five o'clock. Um, yeah, it's 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 complex. It's yeah. a really interesting area, but okay. um, Silicon Valley is a real interesting. It's like a bubble. It's um, yeah, it's an interesting area. And if you consider, as some people point out in the US, that um, that small bubble of people who are kind of of an age and of a um, an education and of a creed are the ones creating ninety five percent of <laughs> of our um, technology, then that's a bit scary in itself. Mm. And certainly, a lot of the discussion that they have is about making the world better, changing the world. But I guess the, the sceptic in somebody would say, well, yes, it's doing that, but it, it's a commercial oh, return. I would absolutely yeah. say it's... it's um, as, you know, it, There's a discussion, there's a debate right now about um, uh, Google coming up with the, um, the, the sort of moral and, you know, stance to AI. That gets into the whole thing about, and of course, any time a private company is the one who's charged with something like that, you will always, you cannot, you cannot but have an organisation that will ensure that whatever the answer is, 
it's to their benefit. Um, so we we really have to be as as a globe. One of the things we have to get better at. So one of the things we talk about in Finland is the the global capacity to have decision making done um, so that we can agree globally on things like you know what are the morals that we would base an algorithm on for general artificial intelligence like that becomes a really um, difficult thing because as humans we are terrible at agreeing at a global level um, on very basic things like that we've never been able to do it yet you know we have the united nations we have all sorts of things and we have real problems in those really basic things mm. um, yeah. I heard something last week that France was coming down. It was bringing in uh, you not able to email people after hours, or I think at schools they were restricting technology usage and taking that lead position on that. It seems very controversial. Uh, awareness of any countries that are doing similar things, or kind of building on your conversation around the negatives of AI or even other technology. Can you expand that a bit further? Mm, um, yes, and, and in some ways controversial. I just think that's sensible. Um, and even here, there's some private schools, for example, where you leave your the, the kids leave their phones at the you know the front desk kind of thing. Um, again, with if and if we take a step back just with that, um, with well, with work or school, I'm just finishing a, a project, a disconnect to reconnect project with a company as well around how you do and don't use technology and not emailing at night, not emailing each other in the workplace, all sorts of things. So again, we go back to something like um, the technology should be there to enable what we want to do. It's a tool. Um, so what you get in some of the places that really think that through is they start with the question of what is it that we need to do here and therefore what's the role of whatever the thing is, including the technology, to do that. Um, I think that, again, there's some some countries and some societies and some systems that are better than that at that than others. And, and Of taking those bold positions... They're not bold. They're yeah. sense. They're just yeah, okay. they're, yeah, yeah. They're just common, they're common sense, sense that yeah. we tend to but lose. They seem bold in that. Like in some of the, like the interviews we've had for for um, for this, there's been that sense that of digital distraction, for example, yeah. that, and it's kind of I said, well, whose responsibility is it to control that? And these are, these are very smart people who mm-hmm. have a global perspective, and they go, oh, it's not government; it's actually up to individuals to have that self control. But we know in what we do, and I'm sure what you do, that people have very little self-control and it's really hard. So it does actually require those regulators. So Absolutely. it may be yeah. logical and something that should occur, but it's controversial in the going, oh, no, 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 it's, yeah, we right. can't have um, Big Brother stepping in to protect what we should. But then I, I, I'm exactly on the same mm. page as you are, Fiona, of going, well, you need to do that because that's that's part of having a having health and well-being and, and, and those priorities. Yeah. But Yes, I mean, big... Big Brother's really interesting. There's there's a, a fellow um, in Oxford, so I have done some work with him. And, and one of the things that I talk about when I talk about technology, how technology changes us, is that it's not all Big Brother. It's also the, you know, the whole kind of um, the Huxleys, what we desire controls us. Um so the free market says, yes, sure, everyone just sort of has to look after themselves and deal with whatever technologies or, or anything else are on the market. 
what we've got, however, well, and we know, and that usually um, only benefits those who are able to, um, to to wield power in the free market. So it's always been a um, th- th- there's no such thing as a even playing field. Um, but when we get to technology, it's, it does have an extra issue of we're electrochemical bags. We're dealing with highly immersive and um, addictive technologies, and they're meant to be that way. In fact, when um, when James went back, he was an app maker, and when he went back to some of his friends in Silicon Valley and said, "So you're you're really happy with?" What you're build with the world that you're you're creating with building these really sticky apps, and every one of them went no. Um, so I think that there's a, there's all different levels that we have to look at. Um, always there is the level of of how does government and policy assist us to recognise and and hold on to the the society that we've decided we'd like to to build and that we want to have and that's again economic political and social um religious it's all of those things mm. um and then what does that look like at individual level and at group level um because that's it is a, a complex system that is the way that it works and at some levels government is allowing the same government is allowing all sorts of things in terms of those companies being able to design and distribute technology. I mean, yes, technology is neutral, but it definitely favours those who control it. Mm. And we have to think about what it's there for. On the other hand, very often people will say, well, how can I get into the discussion um, about how we design technology? Because for me, I look at... How do we change each other? How do we shape each other? Because humans have this incredible mm. impact on each other, on our well-being and and our happiness, but also on things like our capacity for complex problem solving, um, our um, yeah, the way that we look at um, even our immune systems, how that they how they work in the interaction between people. Um, we we could have hours of conversation just on that. So that how do we shape each other? How does technology shape us? And then how should we shape technology? And very often, whether it's a parent or the head of a company, they say, well, I don't know enough about the technology to get into that discussion. But we don't have to know about the technology. What we have to do is say, what is it that good looks like? What do we want? And therefore, technologists, this is what we need from you. Know, from you. Um, and that can be you as a, as a mum or dad at the dinner table mm-hmm. saying, what do I want a meal with my family to look like? And if it is that I don't want them reading, whether it's I used to ban the paper <laughs> when yeah. we didn't have the you know the, the smartphone. Um, but if you want people to be engaged and talking and interacting, it's easy. You don't have screens or books. Mm-hmm. You just put them so away. So the role of parents, for example, yes. to be able to say, I get the sense from our discussion today that, and just even from my, my external knowledge, that... In a country like France or Finland, if they said we're going to do, we're going to ban technology in these these situations, the community goes like that. That's kind of what we expect the government to do. Where in the place like Australia, I, um, I don't. I, yeah, we're not not necessarily as as 
thinking in the same, the similar way. I would, we're almost sort of um, wanting to. Uh, We'll fix it ourselves. We'll, we'll take. We'll be more self reliant. Yeah. See, um, that's it's an again. It's a really interesting thing that we start to step into because when are you more self? Um, uh, we're, we're, sorry. When is it that you are thinking more yourself, um, or is it just that we're left out of the conversation a lot more? So, so if you have very little in the way of good quality information coming to you through general media sources, um, then you have to make your mind up a lot more on your own. But there isn't as much good quality um, conversation mm. around that either. So you've, the countries that tend to engage their society very deeply in difficult Debates on both sides. On both sides um, are the ones that then quite often can make those those rules or regulations more. And it's not that their people are more compliant; it's actually that they're less apathetic. Mm. Um, so, an example for me is again, if we go back to sorry, but it's one of the I'm, that I know. Go back to Finland. I was there with my two-year-old and my six-year-old, um, who are now twenty-five and twenty-nine. Um, when they were just finishing having a look at when kids should go to school because they go very late there, seven. And it's just a, an example that gives you some good, um, uh, yeah, gives you good sort of guidelines on what I'm talking about. So first it was people saying, we think this is too late or should we have a look? Should they be earlier? And instead of it being, again, like a two-party argument where one dives in immediately and says, yes, and if you vote for us, then we'll have a better discussion and they don't know. Um, instead, it was, that's interesting, we'll have a look. So they spent months um, having a look at different countries and, again, more of that sort of complex methodology, which was, we'll look at elements that, that might have nothing to do with it and we'll just see where this goes. So it was, what are these... What are the standards and what are the statistics in other countries of the levels of high school, of going to uni, of um, of jobs, getting a job, of marriage, of divorce, <laughs> of um, apprenticeships, of petty crime, of recidivism? Yeah. Um, I could just imagine if I kind of went and said, I'd like to go and look at recidivism because it might be related to, it would be a case of, you know, what, prove it. Yeah. Um so with each of those, which was the first difference, taking time and looking at alternatives, then the next thing was that that information came back and went out in full in the media. So you get not the kind of little short, dumbed-down versions of things, but full information. Another difference is it was then read. Um, and the reason you read it is because you then get to vote on it. Yeah. So that was another yeah. thing that was different. So you get a higher level of, of engagement with the problem, you get a higher level of engagement with the solution, and you get a better quality engagement around information. Um, and so media has a different role, the government has a different role, the community has a different role, the outcome is a different outcome. Yeah, but that, that not even the, the willingness, but the, the need for government, community, corporate... Etc. To have 
permission to have counter perspectives and discussion yes. around those counter perspectives and yep. and even confidence it sounds like to to not follow say the US or not follow that country or that country or other people. Yeah, yeah. So yeah. I think I, I wonder in, in countries because, like in Australia, that we're a smaller country, that we've got a smaller population, that there's a inherent insecurity in that that we need to keep up. We don't want to be left behind, so therefore we follow whoever we see as being the leaders. Yeah, but Finland's tiny, so yeah. yeah. That's right. But so they say so because they're being smaller, they obviously have something culturally that makes them feel comfortable to be able to question. And yeah. to have their own perspective and to yeah, own that. Yeah, and we've, I mean, even New Zealand's more like that than we are. Um, but you get it here. I was part of, uh, with the um, last state government, um, having a look at innovation in community engagement. Um, you know, makes South Australia kind of more like that. And and it was fascinating when, so one of the, the um, ones that I looked at, one of the juries that I looked at, in the end, the minister did not rule the way that the community that he was engaged with wanted but the level of engagement with that particular minister was was sufficiently high and the interaction and debate was high enough that even though it didn't go the way the community wanted they felt that they had been listened to and they understood where it did go and the level of trust in the government for that group was higher after that process than before. So it is not about we make enough noise that we win it. It is about true engagement and really understanding the problem, being able to get in there and debate the problem and understand why the solution in the end is what it is. And we just don't do that enough. Yeah. One of the topics you've talked about in um, some of the information uh, I've seen of yours is, is trust neurons. Mm. Can I unpack that a bit more? What, is, what, what, is, sure. what does trust mean and uh, trust <laughs> neurons? And I've sort of touched on this a few, in a few of our interviews because trust worldwide is is um, declining. So how do you how do we kind of build those trust neurons? Yeah. Wow. Okay, and and that's one Big of the topic, bits. So. But yes, there's um, there's all sorts of stuff we've just been talking about around the whole you know structure around why you would trust a, a structural process. Okay, so when we we interact with someone else, one of the things, even for the first time, one of the things that happens is through direct gaze, yeah. we have certain parts of our brains that stand up, which don't happen over a screen, mm. and. We get mirror neurons and spindle neurons are the two main ones that you would be talking about. So mirror neurons is a number of subgroups, um, and they talk about you know mirroring the other person. Um, but in order to do that, if you think about it, what you have to do is immediately you have to try and read intent in order to mirror someone. Mm. Um, so what what mirror neurons are really good at is picking up within about a sixth of a second lots of data from the other person around what they look like, what they're going to do, what their intent might be. There's a subset of mirror neurons that are only there to pick up smiles and laughter, nothing else, and they fire really fast. So um, between them and spindle neurons, which are von Economo neurons, which go sort of across the brain, long and thin, um, they tend to link up um, frontal areas, so executive with... Um, with emotion as well, which is more unusual, so across corpus callosum, they they are called the trust neuron, and they are in all animals that have long term 
complex social structures. So certainly primates, um, also elephants, yeah. um, humans, because we have to work out the nuance of the social relationship, the depth, the length, and and it's quite complex. So those two together are firing as soon as you see someone, even for the first time, in under a second. And that's faster than the fight and flight. So we're not actually programmed to do that first. Yeah. The first thing we're programmed to do is connect. Right. Positively. Um, So what we get then is the more direct interaction we have and the more direct positive interaction we have, the more we get to feel comfortable because we're also – there's another probably 15 chemicals through through the direct gaze. Um, Then there's another whole cascade of chemicals if you actually, you know, touch someone's arm or or give them a hug because that's sea fibres in your skin. It's another massive cascade of of, um, data and of chemicals. So all of those things are starting to work a really nice cocktail in our bodies and our brains, the neurophysiology of, of responding to other humans. Then you've got another whole aspect, which is around being in the same space. So what we get is a lovely way of, of dynamically resonating in space. So if we're sitting in the same place, it's why we go to a cafe, it's why we go to a movie, it's why we, um, we love sharing space with other humans, even if we're not directly touching or interacting, is because we have a massive amount of data going between human beings. So we have lots of chemicals, we have theta waves, we have endorphins and hormones, and even we have all sorts talking, of, even if we're not talking, that's right. We're just, we're still swapping them in that space. So we really very much are pack animals. And again, a lot of those things do not travel over technology. So when I have conversations with really sharp technologists overseas, sometimes we'll have these <laughs> wonderful debates of they'll be saying, ah, oh, it's just it's data stream, it's data richness, you know, it's that kind of thing. Well, no, we don't know it is or it's not. And and there's probably there's lots we don't even know that we send. What so what we realize is that we're giving massive amounts of data to each other. And we pick up the brain is really good at picking up lots of positive markers at a subconscious level and so when we have that the richer that is we the the other thing that we do is we we have something called interpersonal neural synchronization so if i'm sitting here looking at you right now which is why it's much better to have an interview face to face yep um, there are certain parts of our brains and social emotional parts of our brain that if we were both wearing a cap now we would see they were both lighting up. Right. And the more we know each other, there's a, there's a, there's a lag time. Send or receive mm. a lag time that happens at the beginning. And the more that we get to know each other, the smaller that lag time is until eventually, say if you and your wife have a, a discussion or whatever, you, you preemptively think, it's called. It's, that's the stuff about I know what you're thinking. You yeah. know, I know what you're yeah. going to say. And it's because so much of that patterning is already in our brains and so much of that connection is there that even thinking about her, there's a lot of your brain that mm. lights up and as soon as you actually see each other, bang, off it goes. And there's some interesting work now around looking at the brains of, say, um, people in, in organisations who are not yet leaders and, and putting the caps on with them, with people they speak to. Mm. And just like storytellers that we love, 
the best leaders are those who engage our emotion, our, our excitement, our interest, you know, our social and emotional parts of our brain mm -hmm. as well as the how do you do it. In fact, we're good at how we do it once we are involved in it. You know, once, once yeah. you've really got someone on board, they'll find a way. Yeah. And it's because that's the secret. And the people that that will become their kind of nascent leaders are the ones that are already really rich in the parts of the brain that connect up all of these kind of areas um, that that start to just, fire just, that um, interest. Just naturally good at that. Yeah. yeah, yeah, and you can get better at it. Yeah. But these people are, tend to be naturally good at it. And it's not just empathy. Is it? Is it empathy? Or is partly, it, yeah, certainly, no, partly, it's empathy. Empathy is a critical part of complex decision-making and yeah. problem-solving. Empathy is a fascinating part of how humans affect and impact each other in not just a an emotional way and a social way, but also in a straight um, logic way. Because we have various logic streams in our brains when we come to complex problems um, with with missing information. If you are dealing with a complex problem on your own, then especially if you haven't got a lot of knowledge and experience about it and you just have you know a sparse amount of knowledge around it, then your brain will tend to go into more of a a, a linear process in terms of this is the information I've got. I just want to make the best right now, then I get on with it. If you empathically engage with another person, then what's interesting is your brain will, especially if it's a, say, a moral dilemma, you know, um, but even without that, if it's a complex dilemma, then your brain will tend to switch into something called discernment mode, which is a different set of criteria that your brain uses to go back and have a look again, if you like, at all of the information sitting in the different parts all over your brain. And um, then it says, okay, so what I'm going to do now is I'm going to switch into looking for consequential information and looking longer term. Like what would be the outcome? What would happen? So you go in with different filters and you come out with different mm -hmm. relevant information. Yeah. And so the role of empathy becomes fascinating in terms of dealing with complex problems. Dr. Avelda, who we interviewed, uh, talked about robots being able to understand, yeah, to be more human, to, to be able to read those the nuances, which we're not quite well, a long way off, really, but being able to make, read those nuances. But I'm assuming from what you're saying is that we'll still develop more of a neuron connection with another human than we'll ever develop with a robot. Yeah, yeah. Um, and a different one. AI is fascinating in terms of what we think about it. Um, I mean, I get to play, I love technology um, as an engineer, but one of the things that, that I, I guess I constantly hear is different ways of putting the, the thing about we're trying to make you know, either humans more like robots, which certain companies are, um, or we're trying to make robots more human. Mm. Um, instead of saying, what are the unique properties of a human and what are the unique properties of AI? Because we each have So what do humans have. do, what do robots do? Yeah, and then how do we maximise yeah. the that uniqueness of each or the combination in any circumstance? Um, because robots, right, or, or AI right now, is still humans. It's just that it's got the AI... Mm. 
you know, over the top. So anything that AI does has been programmed by humans, so mm. they still... Yeah, um, they've had discussions last week with, with researchers, so they're talking about AI and machine learning and, I guess, robots to a certain extent will help us to be able to find more data and analyse data, mm-hmm. but they're unlikely to be able to be insightful, to be able to be intuitive like a human is that that's right i mean we're really excellent at um at context at extrapolation the big difference is abstraction so humans abstract so what we're able to do is is take really disparate information in all different kinds of places and make connections that seem completely um you know like jumps and they're to do with a really interesting mixed bag of <laughs> of context and experience and imagination um, and creativity, mm. um, which turns on multiple parts of your brain at one time. It's also epigenetic. It's in late sleep. It's in um, when you when you go into discernment. Sorry, um, into distraction mode and to daydreaming mode um, when you're looking at the clouds or just thinking. You know you. You're grappling with something and then you look outside for a few minutes and think, ah, that's it. And it's because the way that our brains work, we we have information fractionated all over the place. And very often when we're trying to look at a task, we kind of force the brain to one area. And when we look out of the window for a minute, we're actually letting go and letting our brains go, oh, thank goodness, now we can go and collect things where, you know, all over the place from where they are and kind of package them up and put them... Yeah, give them give yeah. them forward. So that I, last year I was at Google and I was talking to Vint Cerf and we're having this terrific conversation around what's possible to build and what's not. And he said to me, so if you have to choose one thing, what would be that one thing that is different between humans and artificial intelligence? Because there's so many. And, um, and I said, is it? abstraction and he said yes and so luckily we were on the same page because that is something that leap um which is to do with that that way of being able to completely you know laterally jump yeah that's great um because we're still i love the fact that i i was at um ibm watson and uh, talking to the guys to do with the neuromorphic programming and yes um there's a capacity for um, for a computer that has a few million neurons and um, and and a few hundred million kind of parallel processes, but what we don't add is we've got a hundred billion neurons and five quadrillion parallel processes, yeah. and that's just the wiring. And then you've got those that we were constantly, you know, reconnecting and changing the patterns, and and that's just that parallel processing. We don't even get into that abstractive leaping. Um, so we're still so far ahead. Um, yeah, okay. It, 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 that it's yeah, it, it's it's mind-boggling when you start to look at the capacity that we've got. And I think one of the guys worked out something like um, our capability to to deal with the problem compared to one when they're trying to do it um, in something that they've built is akin to our brains taking. A computer would take as much power as you know a number of cities to kind of light them. Um, so we've still got a really interesting.
building on that sort of the the uh, difference between humans and and, and robots and, uh, and the importance of abstraction. Uh, when you look at technology, I'm not going to say young people, young people, and not so young people, and how they use technology. Mm-hmm. What um, what fears you the most? What what fears do you have the most about how we use technology? I think part of it is our our natural slip into getting used to things. So. Um, it is a little bit of the what we desire controls us. I mean, sometimes I'll laugh. I was just in New York talking about AI human interaction and saying if you're standing anywhere on uh, at waiting for a subway, waiting for anything, you, if I was beamed down from Mars, I would think that our power source was our phone sort of thing. Um, so we are very used to. The way that the brain works is we, we create patterns. Mm. And so because we've got something which is very invasive and 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 constantly goes look at me look at me look at me because mm, that's mm-hmm. how we build it yeah. um that's what we do so i think that humans have always loved the bright shiny things we've always leapt to new technologies we aren't necessarily thinking um, because we do get into habits about what we're using technology for and whether it enables what we want so i think that Sometimes then there's a problem. I know really great guys in, in, say, Silicon Valley that are making, you know, dumb phones, light phones, mm. those sorts of things, um, saying that we need to completely disconnect. And I get the sense from some conversations I have is that the guys who are often working at those big groups that are those those addictive applications often do have a dumb phone. They yes. don't have a smartphone. They, they, yeah. So they're the guys. That's so right. I think there's stories of Steve Jobs never letting his kids go near a, an iPad. And that's so right. Those things Facebook there, but, um, guys not letting their kids on Facebook. Yeah, right. exactly. I think there was some, a talk I, or somebody I spoke to on Friday was saying that uh, a key product developer at Instagram has, like, what phone do you use? It's better it's going to be an Android or an iPhone. Mm. No, it's this phone here that lets, lets me SMS and make phone calls. Exactly. So, so yeah. it's that kind of thinking. You're going, wow. Yeah, yeah, because they know one. they know the, da- I think the, the danger. Just the general populace, whether it's young or whether it's old, it's a bit like playing pokey machines, or it's just that reward. It's exactly like that. Yeah, yeah. So you've got the dopamine spike. You've got right. those sorts of things. In fact, I did a sleep program, um, and we were talking about young people because um, there's a great sleep clinic for young people. But what was amazing was in the audience. Um, the amount of guys that were 45 that were four o'clock in mm. the morning, you know, playing those games on their phones. Um, but that's because the, the brain loves patterns. And once you get the pattern in there, that's what we tend to do. Yeah. Um, so I think that with our use of technology, we, we do tend to slip into habit. Um, the second thing is we do tend to be outsourcing for convenience and we have lots of debates about that in the u.s you know you the, say outsourcing to convenience yes so for, for convenience what does that mean well it's just kind of oh i won't have to think about that now i just google it or okay. i just look at it or i yeah. just and it makes us it makes us lazy mm. um and you know the whole alexa issue about having that on all the time so that we don't have to think of lots and lots of things mm. um but at the same time what the other side of that is we have technology which shapes to for us to skip. So our level of attention has dropped in the last 15 years. Um, if you look at the studies around the iGen, which is the generation that was born, you know, with with iPhones, often the problem now is 
I used to talk to the parents and, and talk about screen time for kids. One of the issues now is that the, because the parents are addicted, they're giving their kids the screen because they want to keep going with the things yeah, they're addicted yeah. to. So we've got this whole generational issue. Is it distraction? Issue. Is it not Partly thinking? it is. is yes, it, is it's it both. It's probably all of the above. Yes, it's all of the above. So one of the problems that you get, um, we talked about abstraction. We talked yeah. about that lovely capacity for our brains to, to wander and to connect up new things. When we're abstracting, we're also potentially building brand new brain because when we're in that whole creative novel ideation process. And abstraction is almost, it just shuts down when you get distraction. That's a really easy way to think about it. And distraction is is the phone, the technology. It's that, I'll just do this for a few minutes. Um, And it stops, it shuts down that kind of abstractive process. So what you've got to really think about is... What, what am I getting from um, this interaction? So um, one of the problems about feeling connected over technology is you get you get the dopamine spike and you get the likes, but you don't get some of the physiological chemicals. You don't get some of the direct eye gaze interaction and brain synchronization. And some of those chemicals are the things that that increase the level of belonging and of feeling loved. Yeah. And so you actually get a physiological deficit of some of those things. And so you, it becomes cyclic because then you know that you're not con- as connected as you want to be, which means that you go onto your social media even more, which means mm-hmm. that you're not connecting directly, right. which means that you feel less connected, which means that you do it more. So you get this cycle yeah. that actually drives you... The wrong way in some of those. This be the same as people. You, you, like nowadays, you you catch a train or a tram home or or, or, or a bus, uh, and you see everybody sort of looking down at their phones. Is that the same thing? Where years ago you'd be standing there going, "Well, what am I going to do?" I either read yeah, the paper, yes. which is a bit uh, uncomfortable, yeah. or I look at people's eyes. And That's right, and you, you yeah, and you have and, a discussion. And, yeah. So last week I was in Sydney, and I, I we're doing a um, so glider and is a group that I'm working with, and we're doing a whole look up. Um, mm program and so and and Norman Swan was with me we were having a discussion and so the look up thing is around not just you shouldn't look down at your phone because we know the bad chemicals but there's actually really good reasons to look up quite apart from whether we had even technology and it's all those things we talked about it's all those wonderful things that happen even when you're daydreaming but also when you're looking at another person so we get a huge amount of positive Mm -hmm. um immunological change, of psychological change, of all sorts of things when we interact with other human beings. And Phys- like in a, in a physical presence oh, absolutely. rather than... Yeah. We've, done, we've done a fair bit of work on research work on health and wellbeing uh, and that idea of being connected. And sometimes there's a disconnection of understanding that, that that's, that's not on Twitter or Facebook. That's actually mm. in, in, in that's, the real world. Yes, and, that's right. And there's a lot of research illustrating correlation between how much you use social media to your mental sort of your or an inverse correlation between your mental health and your how much you're using social media. So and it's looking for looking for escape or it's looking for uh, endorsement or whatever it might be. Mm. That, that, yes, that's quite scary. It one, is. one of the lines I use around um, the office every now and then, partly in a joking way, if, uh, when you hear about certain decision making, is we don't need to fear the robots. We need to fear the people acting more and more like robots. Is, that's, is yeah, that right? Yeah, that's yeah. right. So that gets back to that stuff about trying to make people robots and robots people. Yeah. Um, but that 
what you're, I guess what you're talking about, there's a, a pretty good study, a robust study that's come out of the US um, on the iGen and I can't remember now whether it's three times the suicide, twice the depression or three times the depression, twice the suicide, um, but that there's those kind of stats now coming out. Um, there's brain shaping changes um, because certain companies knew that they made more money by pushing us to skip across laterally information, mm. you know, instead of diving deep. There's all sorts of changes. And some are, are arguing, yeah, well, kids are just as bright because they, um, you know, they can look really quickly across different bits on their phone. But that's not the same as the way we chunk knowledge. So when you when you get better at something by learning about it and by practicing it for hours or by reading about it for hours or by going and doing it for a long time, what the brain does is create this beautiful, big, fat 3D spider web of, of capacity. Mm. And that comes up into your real working memory whenever you have to do something in that area and just opens all at once. So you've got this really rich um, physical piece of knowledge if you like mm. that is available to you and it's why when you're an expert in something you don't even have to think about it you know what to do mm. and you know how to do it whether it's dancing or writing or whatever it is and that you don't create that you don't build that if all you do is zip in and out of something on google because you don't create that physical um yeah, that that robust chunk of knowledge mm, to be able that, to utilize um, unconscious competence. So you kind of just you, you're so competent, you just know how to do it. And it's just done automatically. Th- that's right. Is that right? Yeah. But it's it's automatic because you have spent time that's building right, exactly. it. Exactly. You built. You've gone up that. You've, that's you've right. climbed that mountain. Yeah. yeah. So think of it as a big three D spider web, yeah. and you've got long, short, mid term, and long term memory. And then you've got real working memory, and that's the thing we're using right now to sit here, <coughs> listen to each other, um, to <coughs> excuse me, to sit here and listen to each other, and to stay upright and all that kind of stuff. And when you need the information, if you're you know playing a chess game, it doesn't matter what you're doing, getting on a bike, then bang, that whole big chunk opens at once, and that's why it feels intuitive. Yeah. It feels like a hunch, but it's not. It's very, very robust. It's yeah. how our knowledge bases work. And unfortunately, if you don't go deep and build that out of that, you know, constant um, practice and mm. get, getting that information, it's not there. It's That's quite right. different you to looking it up it, on Google. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. That's really good, isn't it? What, what it you're hearing more about people who are switching off at a certain time or mm-hmm. um, not using their phone on a Sunday or a Saturday. Yep. What, what, what should people be doing? Is it is it just is it switching off? Is it is it being is it about is it about being aware of the dangers of technology? Is it about setting rules and barriers of what yeah, I do and I don't? It very much the same as everything else in life. You need to say what what is it that I want to get out of this, mm. or what does good look like. And then you, you know, then you make your rules accordingly. And we've always had to do that. It's just that the technology now is built to be more insistent and more sticky. Mm. So it is harder. And and if and the more immersive it is. So I did some work earlier this year and late last year on on things like virtual reality. Because we're electrochemical bags, we're very quick. Our body, our brain is very quick to 
to go, you know, connect straight into that kind of feeling in, in something like virtual reality. So it's quite addictive quite fast. Mm. Um, but it's also highly tiring. It's, it's very cognitively fatiguing. Um, so we don't have deep thought and that kind of stuff very much. Um, so, yes, sorry, we have to think about, again, w- what is it that I want to do and how does technology or not, <laughs> the lack of technology assist. I mean, when you talked about the phones, when I'm giving a, a, a talk, if I'm on, I might be on stage with a hundred or f- five thousand, and most of them are still parents. And afterwards, a lot of the discussion will be around something like, you know, when do I give them, when do I give my child the first phone? Um, and what they're meaning is a smartphone, because when you say, well, give them a dumb phone when they, they need to be able to talk to you about whether or not they've missed the bus, mm-hmm. people don't even think of dumb no. phones anymore as phones. Um, so we Giving a kid an old Nokia doesn't cut it. No, it doesn't, because the, you know, the answer should be things. Yeah. Then there's that expectation from a parent's side of going, oh, I've got to do this because this is how I show love. I give my kid a phone. <laughs> I know. And, and what if they're not um, a, a teachers uh, in education? One of the classic things is, but I need them to be up with the latest yeah. uh, sort of in technology. And we do a lot of education work. And I remember even a couple of years, two, three years ago, having a focus group of teachers. And there was only one, I felt so sorry for one lone teacher in the room saying, we try to limit how they yep. use pad, iPads yep. and, and the likes. And, and the rest said, how can you do that? That's just... You're going to limit their future, and it was yeah, it was is, it was quite which alarming is how not that discussion right. was going yes, through. Yes, that's and right. Just we started off at the start of the discussion as you was a, a young girl. Uh, suggestions moving forward, you don't need to necessarily be too uh, bolted into young people or children looking forward. But what are your suggestions of people into the future? Hmm. Big question, but yeah, um, I think really taking that step back and saying. It, what, whatever the situation is that you're thinking about, what what is it that I actually want? What does good look like? Um, so not going with where you are and what you've got now. So if we're talking about technology, um, you know, not starting with that there, but actually saying, well, what is it that I'd if I dreamed this, or if I if I start with a complete as- aspiration, or a- um, an aspiration, or even something like a weekend away. Yes. Okay. <laughs> you know, if I had my ideal week where I did nothing, or if or I went somewhere lovely, or if if whatever the question is, what might that look like? And then working backwards with that is is sometimes really um, something which allows us to escape the shackles of, mm. <laughs> of the automatic. Um, so I think that, again, understand how our brains work in terms of they are pattern makers. Um, so habits are both lazy and very efficient. Um, and sometimes it just hooks us into what we want to think about. And that's whether it's what you're going to do on the weekend or what your life's going to be like, you know, in 40 years' time. Like mm. we we should be much more open to thinking both we don't know what is coming um, but also what is, what's quality to me or, yeah. or what really matters to me um, and then to thinking differently about how you, how you get there. Yeah, that's excellent. That's, that's excellent, and 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 but now the the permission to I guess shaping more positive behaviours and and knowing there are negative behaviours out there to, to for an individual to be to be conscious of those and and just like the people looking after their their physical fitness, looking after your 
your mental fitness and that, having an imagination and the, the robots are likely going to replace a lot of things, but uh, but having an imagination and being able to think differently and being able to apply thinking to different situations is a skill that if we don't use it, we lose it. And it's very and it's it's unique, you know, to humans. So that capacity for connection um, is it's a it's life's blood for us. Yeah. We, it makes us whole and healthy it makes us who we are it makes us happy but it also makes us cleverer because when you interact directly you you change the way your brain works and tackles things so certainly creativity and those sorts of things become really interesting around you know what you use technology for and what you don't but even wider than that it's it's really thinking about what is it that i i want out of whatever it is um it could be a relationship, it could be work, it could be education, it could be relaxation um, and questioning. So because we've got such vested interests and we always have had in in those who create the things we, we adopt, um, always have a really healthy sense of questioning. I mean, I was just in the middle of an interesting discussion around whether or not you'll be able to, you know, marry your your. Uh, your robot by 2050 in the US and and the discussion there from a certain people I won't name who make these things are oh well but if it makes people who feel lonely feel loved what's the difference yet there's a massive physiological difference and emotional and mental health difference between having a human that you're married to and having a robot, no matter how... But as a a member of the general population or the community, you've got a role and almost a responsibility to get... to shape that future. Exactly. To have that discussion around... Like where I wrote a blog some year or so ago... I think it was called uh, I Want to Be a Cyborg. and But what yeah. it was about saying we've got this ability to control what it is rather than just being uh, like robots going along and, 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 and dealing with the future, however that might roll. We can actually shape that future. We should. We, we are. Yeah. And that's the thing. We are actually. And that's what I was going to yeah. say. You have an active role in it. So when people say to me, oh, we have to get – you just have to be ready in at work. You have to be ready to to deal with the, the technology coming. No. We as a, a country and as an economy and as a globe can decide what we want work to look like and use technology accordingly. Well, it's the same. We we can decide what friendship looks like, what social systems look like, what family looks like, mm-hmm. and we shape the technology accordingly. So the family bots coming along and the carer bots coming along doing the work. So the institute that I'm setting up looks at that connection between humans and technology and says, well, exactly what's happening in the human when we interact with that technology. And so when do we need the human nurse, the human carer, because of the neurophysiological changes? And what things can technology do really well? Because they do a massive amount of things fabulously. Mm. Um, And how do we put them together and how do we get the best out of both? 
Mm. There's robots are doing surgery now, and, and, and in many many ways, we're a bit guided by by doctors, uh, as I understand it. Yes, and the yeah. other way round. Yeah, um, another yeah. way round. Okay. Yeah, so so both. Yeah. So yeah, and and you're now getting into something we didn't talk about, which was that quality versus quantity partnership with AI, because AI, the surgeon who's got the AI clipped to their glasses, uses that AI in terms of the surgeon's again chunked knowledge. They're using, they're doing something. They might come up upon something which is is a bit awry, and they can say, "What are the best options?" Again, AI is fabulous at that because of the capacity to um, to go through data and to to extrapolate. Sorry, not extrapolate, and to go through data and to to aggregate, and then they can say, "These are the four papers that are relevant." Very quickly, and the surgeon still decides. The surgeon still mm. does it. And it's the best of both worlds. You've got that really rich knowledge. You've got very good data that are, is backing up a decision. And so that complex decision is the best one possible that's made. And that's a, that's a beautiful use of AI, you know, really useful mm. but, uh, and a real help to the surgeon. But you're, never, you're not getting rid of the surgeon. It's not the AI doing it. And it's not just the surgeon doing it. It's a very good partnership between them. And those are the things that, that I work in, in having a look at how do you get those partnerships? When is, when is one good? When is the other one good? When is the partnership good? And what does that partnership look like? What do they both bring to any situation, in which case you're going to use the best of both? Yeah. And if that partnership comes together well, the human can do much, much more. Absolutely, yeah. yes. Okay. When, yes. When it works well. That, it, yep, that's right. things we could never have imagined before, we can yeah. do even more. Okay. Yeah, yeah. I was lucky enough to be part of, um, of of a buggy that a boy who had multiple sclerosis and, you know, could only use his eye muscles um, could um, then be able to drive. Um, so I did that with uh, Jordan Wynn, with Becoming Superhuman. And it was just really great, Jordy's so good at, at that we were trying to figure out an extra way to be able to go left and right not just forward mm. and back which is kind of c fiber attenuation and so those things are just fabulous to be to be involved in um but again it's never taking away the the human um but it's fully utilizing the amazing new things that can come out in technology one of the before we we leave then that that i guess to make it really simple for me, or goes back to complex systems again. If the question the question shapes the system, so if the question is a human centric one and it's positive, then the sorts of things that are being designed and made through technology, you know, the fantastic medical breakthroughs, the all those sorts of things, they are just awesome. And mm-hmm. um, we could sit here for hours talking about how how great they are, and that's. That's a really positive thing for, for, you know, for the world. If the question is not even negative, if it just is useful for, say, one group or one person, and especially if it's to the detriment of others, technology AI is just as good at that. It's, it's a you know, goal-driven optimizer. It will do that just as well. And unfortunately, we tend to sleepwalk most of the time through who's deciding what technology is there for. And there's a small group that make a lot of decisions for their benefit. And so we just have to be more proactive about 
again, getting back to what is it that we want the world to look like? What do we want our society and our family and our future and our workplaces and our education to look like? Our, our nurse, you know, do you want a nurse, sorry, do you want a robot to hold your hand when you die? Those sorts of things should be the things we're discussing. I'm talking about that in Finland, but not here. Mm. How should um, people discuss these sort of things? Is it, do we in, have in many more forums? Yeah. Um, yeah, we we need to be better at giving out good quality data. We need our media is not that good yeah. um, in terms of giving up multiple sources of good information. We don't tend to engage. We tend to shut down. Um, I, yeah, so we th- there's a couple of ways of going about it, and if you if you do the alert and alarmed you don't tend to have the same conversations as if you do the engaged and informed Mm -hmm. (laughs) so we need to be much more engaged and informed at all levels in schools with um with sort of politicians but also with economists with technologists um you know private and public we just need to really widen out our view and our vision about what do we you know what do we want where do we need want to go and what's good and what's not. Mm. I spend a lot of my time talking about the the human to human as people learn more and more about the technology but the awesomeness of human to human and what our brains do um, we don't appreciate well enough so that's Mm. an area that I love being involved in. So human to human is is always going to trump a human to human over over Skype or the like. See that gets complex yes, yes but that still gets interesting in terms of the more you know the human um, we actually do different things when we okay. look at someone we know. Yes. So, and that's part of my research is exactly what is changing. So it's fascinating. It's really There's interesting. No answers, no. <laughs> we've gone on a lovely journey and, and we've, we've given lots of answers, but more questions, I'm sure. Uh, the best way for people to find you or anything else you wanted to talk about, you've got your institute coming up soon, which is exciting. Have you got it on Twitter or what? What, what have you got a website? What's, um, what's the best way? Yeah, I've got a website. Um, I think it's fiona-kerr.com or something. But um, yeah, so I'll, I'll I work at the Adelaide Uni. Yeah. Um, I'll also have the Neurotech Institute, and so your new Neurotech Institute will cover all many of the topics we've explored. Yes, yeah, that's there. looking very much at the interaction between human human and human technology going forward okay. yeah is that likely to launch well um very soon <laughs> <laughs> stay tuned yes yeah within a year days so we're looking now at um like getting it up here rather than overseas I'd, that's that's what's taken the time is getting it done in south australia because i'd really love this ecosystem to be where we sit we're, just just one final point we we uh our intention is to take quite a global perspective in these these interviews, but what do you like about South Australia? Just a closing thought. Um, it's been a, a lovely place to bring up kids. Um, I like it because it's small enough to to have a lot of connected feel, um, yet it's big enough that if you want to find almost anything to do, you can. I live in the hills and it's really easy to come down into the city, but at the same time you feel like you're, you know, you're in the middle of nowhere up there. Um, so a, a quality of life. I know that there's constant discussion of lifestyle here. Um, and, you know, the, the wine, the food, the people. Um, 
I'm on the, the board of Brand South Australia and one of the things that we talk about is the the Brains Trust, if you like, of South Australia. So a friend of mine, Jewel Hicks, talks, mm. says we should have a bumper that says the, the state of mind, which is mm. brilliant. Um, so you do get a lot of people staying here that could go to the eastern states because they prefer the lifestyle here and they prefer the connected relationship kind of aspect of working here. And I, I really do like that. I think it's a very nice place to live, but it's also a place to have these kind of conversations. Um, so, yeah, that's I like great. it. And you travel the world from here, so... Yes, that's right, you, so I do. You're talking about going to the US and, and Europe and... Yep. Yeah, that's good. Thank you so much. All you're welcome. Best. Thank you. Hey, Jason here. Just to say goodbye until next time, please do not forget to subscribe to Real People via iTunes or your favourite podcast platform. While you're there, please leave a review. If you're interested in receiving our every Friday same time emails, topics from market research to human-centred design, innovation, entrepreneurialism, a uh, whole lot of different topics by articles by me, Square Holes team, special guests from Justin Wilden to Steve Samatino, Lisa Domenico, Elaine Steed, uh, been quite popular, very committed every week for the last 18 months or so. Please go to squareholes.com forward slash blog to read and to join the email list. You can also follow me via Jason Dunstone on Twitter or your favourite social media. Thank you for listening. Uru.